America. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hey, Cricket customers. Max with ads is included with your Cricket $60 unlimited plan at no additional cost. Max is the streaming platform where you can watch Scoob, Meg 2 The Trench, The Nightmare on Elm Street Collection, and so much more. Remember me. Just log in with your Cricket username and password to experience Max on all your favorite devices. We've never seen this before. Max, the one to watch for a good scream with Cricket. Phone plan streams and standard definition. Programming subject to change. Fees, terms, and restrictions apply. See cricketwireless.com for details. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, October 7th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the WHO has officially approved the first ever malaria vaccine. The United States Postal Service is trying out being a bank. And the story of a white-naped crane named Walnut who fell in love with a human named Crow. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Kicking off with some very good news, the World Health Organization has approved the first ever malaria vaccine. The mosquito-borne virus kills roughly half a million people worldwide every year, more than half of whom are children, and killed hundreds of millions of people in the 20th century. So having a vaccine is a huge step towards saving countless lives. Quoting New York Magazine's Intelligencer, The Muscurix shot, which has been in the works for over 30 years, creates antibodies to combat Plasmodium falciparum, the most dangerous of the five malaria pathogens, and the most commonly found strain in sub-Saharan Africa. It's also the first ever vaccine approved for a parasitic disease. Most vaccines protect people against viruses, which are much simpler to combat with inoculations. Muscurix is designed to be administered in three doses to infants between 5 and 17 months, with a fourth shot around 18 months later. End quote. According to the BBC, the vaccine, also known as RTSS, was actually proven effective at preventing 40% of malaria cases and 30% of severe cases six years ago, and over 800,000 children have already received at least one dose, with the WHO noting no safety concerns thus far. Now, all that said, the vaccine is not perfect. For one, its efficacy rate against severe disease is about 50% in the first year following the first shot, and basically zero by the fourth year. We've become a bit spoiled from the high efficacy rates of the new COVID-19 vaccines, but many vaccines are typically more in that 50 to 70%-ish zone. I remember epidemiologists saying how they were hoping we could get just 70% for the COVID ones and being astonished that most of them were in the 90s. And the BBC also pointed out, you know, when you're talking about hundreds of millions of cases, even a 40% reduction is an enormous number of lives saved. 
As such, the vaccine will be deployed as just one prong of a multifaceted strategy, with preventative measures like bed nets and sprays, as well as drug treatments also playing a role. And there are other malaria vaccines in development. One from Oxford showed 77% efficacy in early trials this past spring. But the timeline for malaria vaccines is much longer because it's so complex. As Pedro Alonso, head of WHO's Global Malaria Program, said in NPR, quote, This is a parasitic disease. The parasite life cycle plays out in multiple stages in different parts of the human body and in the mosquito hosts. This is orders of magnitude more complex in terms of the biology and the causative organism than a virus, end quote. While the WHO has greenlit Muscirix, it still needs to be approved by Gavi, the global vaccine alliance, who will also order the shots for any nations that sign up. And that whole process will probably take at least a year, but knowing how distribution for things like this works, even when we're not in the middle of a pandemic, it could take even longer. Now, one bright spot is that since it's designed for infants, it can be rolled into their existing immunization schedules, which is particularly helpful for vaccine programs serving more remote communities. And as far as funding goes, quoting again from the BBC, the vaccine has been developed by the pharmaceutical giant GSK, which has pledged to supply the doses at the manufacturing cost plus 5%, but has not specified the price. When it comes to buying them, it's now up to countries and donors to find the money. The international funding community has to now discuss and then decide how to procure the vaccine, GSK's chief global health officer, Thomas Breuer, told the BBC, end quote. Gavi is one organization that often funds vaccinations, especially in Kenya, as does the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And JSK themselves did donate 10 million doses to be used for the study, and they have pledged to make 15 million doses a year. But we may need as many as 100 million doses every single year, so further solutions will need to be worked out. For a start, GSK says that it will transfer production to another producer in India in the future. There is still a lot to be worked out, and it's not a perfect solution, but the bottom line is that this is really, truly huge. Dr. Machidiso Moedi, the WHO's Regional Director for Africa, said in a press release, quote, For centuries, malaria has stalked sub-Saharan Africa, causing immense personal suffering. We have long hoped for an effective malaria vaccine, and now, for the first time ever, we have such a vaccine recommended for widespread use. Today's recommendation offers a glimmer of hope for the continent which shoulders the heaviest burden of the disease, and we expect many more African children to be protected from malaria and grow into healthy adults. End quote. In four cities across the U.S., the United States Postal Service is test piloting a postal banking system. In certain locations in D.C., Baltimore, the Bronx, and Falls Church, Virginia, individuals can now cash payroll or business checks of up to $500 at their local post office and get a single-use Visa gift card in return for a flat fee of $5.95. According to Thomas Dunn over at Boing Boing, this is a way overdue move. He wrote, quote, Nearly every other country on the planet offers banking services through their post office system. President Taft had previously introduced a U.S. postal savings system in 1910 to fight back against predatory lending. It offered a guaranteed 2% interest rate, and the post office was legally required to redeposit that money into local banks to stimulate the local economy. The USPS got to keep whatever additional interest they accrued to 
to cover operating costs. By the end of World War II, there was nearly $3.4 billion invested in the postal savings system, but the system was shuttered in 1967 because private banks were booming in the post-war economy and lured the public back to them with lofty promises like high interest rates. To return to a full postal banking system would be a serious boon for a lot of Americans. As it stands, nearly 35 million U.S. households, that's 28% of the country, either don't currently have a bank account or regularly rely on alternative financial services like check cashing services and payday loans for other reasons, costing them about 10% of their annual income on average. Meanwhile, 59% of U.S. post offices operate in zip codes where there's just one bank or no bank at all. Even with just the limited financial services offered by banks right now, this makes a difference. And consider the fact that rural post offices already sell 27% more money orders per capita than offices in urban areas. Access makes a difference. And according to an extensive white paper put together by the USPS, those unbanked and underbanked Americans spent a combined total of about $89 billion on interest and fees from alternative financial services in 2012. Imagine how much money they could save and how much more money the post office could make if those kinds of services were offered through a trustworthy, legally bound not to screw you over public service like the USPS. End quote. Dunn says the Visa gift card thing isn't great, but it's a good first step. And according to the American Prospect, that was sort of a workaround. Post offices apparently already sell single-use gift cards, so the only change that was technically made was allowing people to buy the gift cards with a paycheck or business check. And as such, they didn't need permission from Congress to make the change. Adding banking to the post office's suite of services has been a big priority for the American Postal Workers Union, or APWU, for several years. They've seen it as a way to bring much-needed income to the post offices and also provide greater financial accessibility to many Americans. And this is a pretty cool move that I hope gets expanded, but the prospect mentioned another postal service offering from another country that sounds so awesome. Quote, if you order a pair of shoes online in Switzerland and they don't fit, you can take them back to the post office to return. Not only will they ship the shoes back to the retailer, but they will instantly credit your postal savings account. End quote. Can you imagine? I mean, I'm not positive I I like returning via mail getting even easier because that's ultimately not great for the environment and we should probably be encouraging more local shopping. But still, how cool is that? More innovations in USPS that are good for the Postal Service and good for people are definitely my jam. Ending today with a bit of irreverence, but also of love or at least the utter chaos of the world. Jason covered this on Kotki.org already today, but it's such a good story that I am sharing it here too. A man, funnily enough, named Chris Crow, has accidentally become the erstwhile mate of a white-naped crane named Walnut. Stay with me on this one. It's not actually as creepy as it sounds. Quoting a Washington Post article from 2018, When Walnut arrived at the Front Royal Virginia Endangered Species Breeding Center back in 2004, she was the most genetically valuable white-naped crane in captivity. At 23, she had yet to produce a single chick, and she had a reputation for murdering her mates. Two male cranes that made amorous overtures toward Walnut had been found dead, with their bellies sliced open by her sharp claws. That, at least, was the rumor, says zookeeper Warren Lynch. End quote. 
As far as Walnut's various keepers over the years have been able to tell, Walnut might have imprinted on another human when she was a baby, leading her to relate more to humans than to her fellow cranes. Most zookeepers now know how important it is for cranes to be cared for by other cranes as babies because of the importance of them learning from them and imprinting on them, but not every crane chick is lucky enough to be born into or raised in such an environment. And even when crane chicks are kept in groups with their siblings to encourage healthy development, they can still sometimes act out, trying to kill their siblings, so they have to be separated. And when they're separated, they might be visited more often by human carers. This is what Walnut's current keepers theorize happened to her. And then, when Walnut was transferred to the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute, she met Chris Crow. She was one of 17 cranes under his watch, but she immediately stood out and immediately took a liking to him. When Walnut still refused to mate with any of the cranes presented to her, the Institute determined that they needed to artificially inseminate her with another crane's semen in order to help keep the species going. Crow was part of the team that helped perform that task. Walnut laid two eggs, which the team snuck away to foster cranes to raise because they were worried that Walnut wouldn't recognize them as her own and she would try to kill them. Plus, egg-sitting is usually a two-crane task, and if Walnut couldn't do it all on her own, Crow says that he didn't want to sit on them himself. Now, after that whole affair, Crow noticed that Walnut was paying even more attention to him, and started to perform the moves of mating dances and calls whenever he was nearby. Sometimes he tried to respond, flapping his arms and circling around. Quoting again from the post, As the weather cooled, so did Walnut's ardor. But in the spring, Walnut began greeting her keeper with bows again. This gave Crow an idea. If Walnut thought he was her mate, maybe Crow could make that year's artificial insemination less stressful for both of them. If we could get her able to do it without catching her, there's no stress, no risk of injury, Crow says. It's much better for us and for the crane. End quote. Eventually, Crow would help Walnut produce five chicks through artificial insemination, with him playing the role of her mate, both during the main act and in between, by bringing her supplies for nests, looking after the chicks, responding to her dances, etc. He told the Post, quote, It's not exactly fun for me, but it keeps Walnut happy. End quote. Thanks in part to their work, white-naped cranes are no longer quite as endangered, so Walnut is no longer obligated to keep laying eggs. But maybe unfortunately for Crow, cranes mate for life. And cranes can live over 60 years. Quoting again, If she's still here when I'm eligible for retirement, I won't be able to leave, he says. I'd feel like a jerk. Another male keeper, and Walnut clearly prefers men to women, might be able to woo her if Crow were to disappear, but as Crow has seen with his other cranes, the loss of a mate is traumatic. Widowed cranes stop eating and fill the air with mournful calls, sometimes for weeks on end. It's unlikely that Walnut will be called on to produce more chicks, but Crow continues to dance with her and even mate with her when she asks. It's a strange job, but Crow says he's used to getting teased at this point. I've heard every joke, he says. End quote. Definitely a strange job. And when someone resurfaced the story on Twitter via Tumblr the other day, it elicited some pretty great quips. User Scott of the South tweeted, quote, Chris is actively involved in the raising of his children, steadily employed, has plans for the future, isn't afraid of long-term commitments, and conscious of his lover's needs. Why are all the good ones taken? End quote. And screenwriter Amanda Debert said, quote, when he says he's married with five kids, but it's complicated, end quote. 
Yeah, I can't imagine what Crow's dating life is like. I mean, at what point do you bring up that you're in a committed relationship with a white-naped crane? So just a small update on the Zodiac Killer thing from yesterday. Still no confirmation from any of the police departments that house the cold cases of some of his alleged victims, nor from the FBI, who have said that it remains an open investigation. I think if anything is to come from the independent group's claims, it won't be for a while, as the appropriate authorities are going to do their due diligence on this and not just immediately say that some people on the internet got it right. But in other news, LEGO has just announced their largest model ever, and it is, appropriately, of the Titanic. The 9,090-piece set is over four and a half feet long when put together and will retail for $629 once it's released on November 8th. The new to-scale replica of the fated ship has beat out a LEGO model of the Colosseum, which was the previous record holder for most pieces, at just 54 less than the Titanic. Quoting Gizmodo, The scale of the model allowed LEGO to include not only an incredible level of details in its Titanic replica, incorporating cargo cranes, swimming pools, lifeboats, promenades, and multiple decks, but functional features as well, like anchors that can be raised and lowered, and a mechanism for adjusting the tension of the lines that run between its masts. The model also breaks apart into three sections, but not because of what happened to the ship itself on that fateful night. Instead, the feature makes a detailed cross-section of the ship visible, revealing other details like the recognizable grand staircase, a smoking lounge, and even the boiler room, end quote. It is seriously impressive and really, really cool. It also reminds me of a video I saw on TikTok recently, link in the show notes, of a small model toy of the Titanic that, when put in water, is designed to accurately sink and split in half in the exact same spot as the real ship. Morbid and very interesting. And one last thing, if you watched WandaVision and were a fan of Katherine Hahn's Agatha, I have very good news for you. Variety is reporting that a new Agatha spin-off is in development from Marvel and Disney+. Plus. It's not officially confirmed and we have no other details yet, but, uh, wow, yes please, this would be very cool. As io9 put it, quote, If this series somehow isn't called Agatha all along, then what are Marvel and Disney Plus even doing? End quote truth. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.